This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Dr. Dan Siegel. Dr. Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the executive director of the Mindsight Institute in Los Angeles. He's the author of several books, including The Developing Mind, as well as the Sounds True audio learning programs, The Mindful Brain, and The Neurobiology of We. Dr. Siegel is also teaching a course on mindfulness and the brain with meditation teacher Jack Cornfield. This course is available beginning in the month of October online at SoundsTrue.com. Today on Insights at the Edge, I talk with Dan about what it means to have a healthy mind. You're an expert in a, in a field that is uh, new to me, and I imagine new to many Sounds True listeners, interpersonal neurobiology. Can you explain what that is in simple, everyday people language? Absolutely. You know, um, in my own training as a scientist and as a psychiatrist, you know, working in the field of research, but also the field of helping people reduce their suffering as a, as a psychotherapist, it seemed to me that there needed to be some home in which different ways of knowing the truth could be present. Uh, And so when I was a a training director in child psychiatry back in the early 90s, it was the beginning of the decade of the brain, and so interpersonal neurobiology was a term I used to describe this interdisciplinary um, conversation, which ended up becoming a field of knowing, where anyone who was pursuing a rigorous, disciplined way of understanding the nature of reality, in particular the nature of human experience, were welcome to come, and we would look for the findings that emerged from these separate disciplines and look for the similarities among them, something E.O. Wilson, I later learned, calls consilience. Um, And when you find these consilient um, discoveries, these consilient principles, you can get a scientifically grounded view of human experience. And in this case, it led to things like being able to define uh, a core aspect of the mind, which apparently hadn't been done, and then actually define, not just describe, but define the deep nature of health. And as a practitioner, this interpersonal neurobiology view became really important because it allowed the many, many hundreds of forms of psychotherapy to actually um, have a place where we weren't trying to sell one way of doing things or another, but actually could explore how each of their approaches um, could be understood through this lens of a of a um, an integrated view. So that's interpersonal neurobiology is basically a field of knowing that invites um, all disciplines of science as it started, but later on contemplative practices, you know, the arts, music, any way you're trying to pursue this coherent sense of what reality is about into the tent, so that we can have a mutually respectful and collaborative conversation about what being human means. Now, you said something very interesting, a couple interesting things, but that this new field has allowed there to be some kind of agreement about what is the mind and what is health, or at least an aspect of what is the mind and what is yeah. health. So what, what is that agreement about both the mind and health? Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, the actual journey started, um, you know, as I was training as a, um, a researcher in a field called attachment, which is looking at parent-child relationships and how the child's mind develops in the setting of relationships with parents and caregivers. And yet the field of developmental psychology didn't really have a definition of mind. They certainly could say things like, the mind is your thoughts and feelings and stuff. So I was puzzled by that. And then I reflected that even my own field in psychiatry did not have a definition of mind. And it was a decade of the brain, and everyone was interested in exploring how the mind related to this thing called the brain. And so I started a study group back in 1992 to look at that question. 
what is the brain, what is the mind, how are they related to each other? Well, the funny thing was, these different disciplines that came, anthropologists, geneticists, people studying complex systems, uh, neurosurgeons, neuroscientists, and of course, developmental psychologists and clinical psychologists and all those folks, they actually had no common way of beginning the dialogue because no one could agree on what the mind was. You know, a, a neuroscientist would say, well, the mind is just the activity of the brain, you know, which was a thing that a lot of neuroscientists still say. Or an anthropologist would say, you know, the mind is kind of what connects us across cultures and across, you know, the generations as people communicate with each other. Or, a, you know, a, a developmental psychologist might say, well, you know, the mind is this thing that sort of stays with you as you develop across these phases of life and you have these different levels and phases and all this kind of stuff. But no one could find a commonality, and the group was about to literally dissolve. And as the facilitator of the group, I had invited these 40 scientists into the room, and it's just the beginning. You know, I had to come up with something that maybe we could have as a beginning working definition of what the core aspect of the mind was that we could share, at least as a starting point. So back in 1992, this is what came up to me when I was reading all these different fields and trying to keep the group together. As I said this, I said, a core aspect of the mind can be defined as an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. And amazingly, and this is kind of a shocker if you're ever in a university setting, you know, which I was at the time, um, 100% of the scientists in the room, 40 scientists, agreed on this definition as a starting place. It's not an ending place, but it's a place to begin a discussion. So this idea that the mind, a core aspect of it, is a regulatory process that governs the flow of something, and that something is very specific. It's energy in the physics terms of energy, you know, like you need energy to have a thought, you need energy to, you know, turn on a light bulb or move your arm, literal energy. And information is this uh, experience where we symbolize things as representing something other than they are. Like, for example, the word rock, R-O-C-K, is information for the stone in your hand. It's not the stone itself. So this flow of energy and information describes mental experience, but the regulation of it is a very important aspect of the mind that, for some reason, people hadn't used as a definition. From there, the group went on to live for four years, and we described in great detail the way an anthropologist could use that definition of mind to explore how the brain is shaped by uh, cultural experiences. And later on, we actually started a, um, a big research center that still exists now at UCLA called the Center for Culture, Brain, and Development that I help run. And uh, you can also look at things like mindfulness and see how the practice of focusing your awareness in a certain way harnesses the regulatory circuits of the brain so that you can determine how energy and information flow in a more powerful way than just plain everyday awareness. So now I help run a, a research center at UCLA called the Mindful Awareness Research Center. So that definition of mind was an entree to invite all the different scientific disciplines who actively pursue research paradigms and the practice of psychotherapy to help people understand the mind because when you get this definition, suddenly when you call it a regulatory process, you can teach people the two foundations of regulation are monitoring something like driving a car. You've got to watch where you're going and then modifying that. You have to move the steering wheel or turn on the, put down the brakes or press down the accelerator. So monitoring and modifying as a therapist are the two things you can use to build up in a client, a patient, uh, to help them actually strengthen their mind and move it toward health, which we can talk about next. Okay, well, let's just take this uh, and unpack it just a little bit. So I see the miracle that's involved with getting a bunch of different academics in the room to agree to a definition, like the definition yeah, I'm of mindset. Yeah, glad you appreciate I get that. that. <laughs> it was like a miracle. I should yeah. have stopped then. Well, I mean, yeah, it's like almost like getting a word in the dictionary or something. Like you've done, you've done something amazing here by yeah, helping to bring. Yeah, but what I don't understand is what the implications are of that definition for me. 
as a person, let alone if I was uh, a therapist or a researcher. So could you help me? You, you mentioned monitoring and modifying, but I, I need to get more understanding of this. More handling that, yeah. yeah. Well, you're not alone in that. And let me just say, because it may not come up, that um, since that time, since 1992, which is now 17 years ago, uh, that I've been using the definition, it's been striking to find that um, the field of mental health, over 95% of over 80,000 therapists I've asked have never been given a definition of mind. And then amazingly, it turns out that even in scientific fields that study the mind, like neuros, cognitive neuroscience, they actually say we shouldn't define the mind because it's a mystery and we don't know what it is. And even philosophers who have published books with the word mind in the title, who are mind philosophers, they've told me directly that defining the mind is an error, that it's a philosophical error because the mind is undefinable. So as a practitioner trying to help people move their lives toward health, I find those comments understandable but very frustrating because people come to me in my office um, you know, to make their minds stronger, to help their minds get out of the chaos and rigidity that plague them, to reduce suffering. Those are all mental experiences. And so without having a definition of mind, it would be hard to know how to help a person's mind uh, heal. So here's how it's useful on a practical basis. And in this new book, I have Mindsight coming out. You know, I kind of try to make this available to the general public, not just professionals. In the view of the mind as a regulatory process, what it gives is an empowerment to you, Tammy, to say, okay, this mind doesn't have to be totally a mystery. At least part of seeing it as a regulatory allows you to say, okay, to regulate, I need to see something directly, and then I need to shape that thing. So rather than being a passive passenger along the journey of the mind, you know, doing whatever it's going to do, I actually have the opportunity to strengthen my ability to look at the inner sea, you know, this notion that we have an inner subjective life. And when you do that, you can, as in any mindfulness practice that at least hasn't named the mind in this way, but at least can be seen through this lens, a mindfulness practice allows you through Tai Chi or Qigong or centering prayer or mindfulness meditation, all these wonderful ancient teachings that are also present throughout the world in the East and the West, but also um, in modern times. These practices help you stabilize the lens that lets you actually look at energy and information flow. Okay, so let's just pause for one second. Why is seeing the first step in regulation? Okay, well, let's say you're in a car, right? Okay. You get in the car, and you want to go somewhere through time. That's the flow of you, in this case, through physical space. But it's a movement across time, right? Yeah. So how are you going to do it? Uh, I'm going to think about where I'm going, and mm-hmm. then I, I, I would probably not like to be blindfolded to make yes, it to be successful. That's a good choice. <laughs> at this, and uh, yeah, I'd think about where I'm going, and then I'd probably turn on the radio, might listen mm-hmm. to you on a sounds true recording, space out, and somehow arrive at where I am. Okay, so let's look at the spacing out. Okay, um, what did you actually do while part of your mind was listening to Tammy and Dan talking on the sounds true recording? Uh, what were you doing? in the spacing out. I mean, some part of me was, was uh, looking at the road. I don't really know what I'm... I mean, that's, of course, one of the... This is even harder than defining the mind. What are people doing when they're <laughs> driving in their car? I don't really know what I was doing exactly. Right. Okay, but let's imagine what it was like, even though you don't remember what it's like. Yeah. Explicitly. But, so what, what did you actually do to go from one place to another? Well, there are all kinds of things. Obviously, I turned the car on, I hit the accelerator, I turned mm-hmm. right. I mean, I made all kinds of movements with my hands and feet and et cetera. Right, and, and what I, were those movements doing? Those movements were making the car go, hitting the accelerator, steering the wheel, that kind of thing. Absolutely. So they're making the car go and influencing the direction of the path of the car, right? Yes. I mean, I'm not smart enough to understand your work, Dan, but I, I do drive to and from work every day. <laughs> well, you are, I for do. sure. Yeah. Everyone okay. is. Okay, that's the spirit. Um, for sure. Yeah. That's for sure. But let's talk about the car. So okay. one thing you're doing is you're shaping the direction of the movement of the car. Correct. We, 
let's just call that, you know, shaping or modifying or modulating or, you know, whatever English word we want to use, but you got to influence the thing as, as it, the direction of the thing, right? Yep, correct. But if we put a blindfold on you as you're listening to this incredible tape of Tammy and Dan uh, in your car, uh, but you had a blindfold on, you couldn't see or monitor, observe, or take in, or whatever words you want to use, it doesn't matter, but you, d- you couldn't see where you're going, what would happen? I-, I do believe blind people shouldn't drive, along with this, the people who issue driver's license and all the rest. I- I'm with right. them on Blind this. people should be able to do almost everything, and that would be a hard one now. Yeah. Because why? They can turn the steering wheel and press the brakes and accelerator. Because they don't know where they're going, and they'll hit they- another car or a tree or something like that. Exactly. So that's the monitoring part. And many people in fact, are blind to the energy information flow inside of themselves. So they move this energy information flow, but they're not monitoring it. So they're impulsive and reactive, and they say things that are unkind. They do things that are destructive. And um, unless those are done intentionally, which often they're not, um, you know, you can see this as a kind of mind blindness, just like putting a blind person in a car. Now, the, the good thing about the mind is almost everyone can be assisted in developing the skills to see more deeply into energy and information flow, to have mind sight, to actually see and shape the inner flow that is our subjective inner world. Um, and that's the idea, is that you can drive a car with more balance and equilibrium and more, more efficacy because you are actually watching where you're going. So what you're saying is that by looking inward, by looking at the mind, that's the monitoring function, and then yes. I can modify in some way based on what I see. Exactly. And a lot of people don't have training on how to effectively modify, and it's something very specific, the flow of energy information. And this is something also we learn early in life, but it can also be taught throughout the lifespan. So can you say a little bit more about this? I'm, um, this is, you're, you're, in a way, you're defining this term mind sight that you've created by mm-hmm. saying I'm, 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 the mind sight is I'm looking at the flow of energy information. What does that mean? I mean, I'm looking, what am I looking at? Right. So mind sight is this idea that you can see and shape the inner world um, so that you're not just a passive passenger along the ride of life. You can actually become an active author of your own story. So mindsight is a word I just invented because when I was working with patients back, you know, in the early 90s, and even before that, in the 80s, there was no word to describe this phenomena of actually not just having a mind, of course, we all have minds, but actually becoming very clear in what's going on so you can actually shape the way your life is going. And it seemed to me that people who had health had this mindsight ability and so many people who came with suffering had compromises to their mindset capacity. And so back in the 80s, when this became apparent in my own training, you know, as a, as a physician, where a lot of my teachers lacked mindset, and I ultimately dropped out of medical school before I kind of thought about this stuff and then came back back in 1980, um, you know, I was really wondering, how do we know we have a mind? Not just have one, but how do we know we have one? So that's what mindsight was born from, is this uh, term trying to embed the idea that you can see your own mind and actually see the mind of others. Now, since that time, the early 80s, um, you know, so much science has come up, both in the psychological realm and the neuroscience realm, that we can talk about these things called mindsight maps, where you can actually map out who you are. You have like a me map, and you're literally in your brain with a corollary of your subjective experience of insight. And then you have a, a you map where I can have a map of your mind, Tammy, and actually know or have a, a sense of what's going on inside of you. And the correlate of that in my brain actually has certain patterns of neural firing that we can now actually monitor in uh, brain studies. And then there's even a we map where there's a sense of a relationship subjectively that I could feel between you and me. And also in the brain, we can find patterns that develop, that, that map this sense of we. So at least in those three ways, mindsight gives you a sense of yourself, a sense of the other, and a sense of our relatedness. And, you know, unfortunately, if people have damage to certain parts of the brain, 
and this is what I uh, found in my clinical practice, you know, they lost mind-sight abilities that they used to have. And then if we could cultivate the development of those parts of the brain, you could actually get, even in people as old as 92 that I've worked with, you can actually get people who've not had much exercise of these mind-sight circuits to grow them to the point where this 92-year-old patient's wife called me up and said after therapy, she said, you know, did you give my husband a brain transplant? Because he had become so different. Because when you have mind-sight, you have kindness and empathy and insight and equanimity and basically what the Greeks called eudaimonia, you know, this sense of not only emotional equanimity but also sense of connection and meaning in life. It's a deep sense of well-being. Whereas when you lack mind-sight, you're often just like a cork bobbing up and down on this mental sea and thrown around by whatever goes on, and your life is filled with suffering and, and chaos and rigidity. So there's all sorts of ways of understanding that we can get into next. But in terms of your question about the mind and mind-sight, it's basically, um, and, and I must say, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised at the resistance from different disciplines of science and philosophy and even, so far, some areas of psych- psychotherapy, you know, that they don't want to define the mind. And so I have to just say to you, Tammy, and, and to anyone listening to this, you know, there are a number of very, very bright individuals who say defining the mind is a real mistake. And even though you see lots of fields describe the mind and even describe mental health, like positive psychology does a beautiful, beautiful job of bringing us to a focus on health rather than illness, but their descriptions of of health don't involve a definition of health. And so when we move into that area in our discussion, I hope we'll really explore the fundamental mechanism beneath it because it'll help make, I think, make more sense of why does seeing the mind help. Because when you can track energy and information flow in your inner world, in the world of another person, and in the relational world we have, not just with other people, but with the whole you know, planet, really, and beyond that, those three dimensions, you know, you can actually move your life from suffering, which involves chaos and rigidity, in ways we'll describe soon, to what you can see as the fundamental mechanism of a healthy mind, which is a process called integration. And integration is literally defined as the linkage of separate and differentiated parts. And that's, that's a whole other part of our discussion. But to stick with the mind part, this is the beauty and power of defining the mind as regulatory because when it's embodied, you can actually get to know your body, not just the skull part of your brain, but your whole extended nervous system. And I actually use the brain to refer to that extended n- nervous system. But also relationally, because the mind is uh, a process that's both embodied and it's relational. So you never think in single skull or single body terms we are all interconnected in this deep, profound way. Uh, although when we just look on the surface, we think we have these separate selves, when in fact energy and information flow doesn't recognize the limitation of a body as a boundary. It flows throughout all our interconnectedness. And then you see that fitting with you know, the contemplative and spiritual view of the oneness of everything. And so this is basically a scientific perspective on that deeper truth that we're all interconnected when you look at energy and information flow being both embodied and relational. So what I'm uh, not 100% following is what does it mean to look at the flow of energy and information? What kinds of things am I seeing? Okay. Well, can I do a little um, experiential for you? So you may, of so course. rather than explain it, better to experience it. Sure. So just let yourself, you know, put both feet on the floor and I'm going to say a few words, and then I'm going to pause, and I'm going to say a few other words. And just sense whatever arises in your awareness. You ready? Ready to go. Okay. No. 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 Yes. 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 
Yes. Yes. Yes. Now you might want to just take a nice deep breath. And did you notice a difference between the experience of no and the experience of yes? I did. And what did you experience? Well, at first when you said no, I thought it was K-N-O-W. Ah, and and how did that feel? Nothing really happened. I was just sort of in empty space for a little while. Mm -hmm. But then I started hearing it as N-O, and all kinds of aggression. I saw all kinds of aggressive, me in aggressive postures of different kinds. You could sort of have visual images of you in aggressive postures? Yeah, I was punching things Ah. and, and saying curse words at people and things like that. Oh my gosh! Okay. Yeah, I'm a very aggressive person, Dan. We, we can talk about that later. But anyway, okay. so that was the that was the no, and then the the yes was very sweet. I saw you know images of making out and being in nature and all kinds mm. of positive, melty kinds of images. Wow! And 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 the feeling inside your body was one of quite a bit of pleasure. Uh huh. Okay, great. So there you see a very very simple demonstration, almost as simple as we can get, of a relational process that is. You and I are in communication now, and I'm just giving you a word. Obviously, there's a tone involved in the word, too. And depending on on how your own mind interprets the information of that word, no, in our English language, could have been K-N-O-W or N-O. And you could see, even in that, the way your mind is framing the meaning of the information shapes how energy and information will flow in your experience. The information is, is it K-N-O-W or N-O? And the energy, you could feel the difference from just vast emptiness, not much happening to these aggressive images and this feeling of, of tightness and, and being energized in an aggressive way. And then when there's a pause and then a shift, the only shift was now the information and energy flowing from me to you. So there's the relational part. The sharing of energy and information flows one way of defining a relationship. And then as that happens, you had a total shift in the information, now it's yes, that you experience in the imagery, you know, the making out, all these wonderful, energized feelings, this pleasurable sense, extremely different from either the emptiness of K-N-O-W or the aggression of N-O. So that just gives you a, a feeling, and this is some a refined perceptual ability to actually track energy and information flow um, between you and me or between you and anyone. So that's the relational piece. And then even in your body. So you could actually, if we were spending more time on this, you know, sense what your muscles were doing. Um, Focus your attention on your intestines, on your lungs, on your heart. All this is part of something called interoception, where you have perception of the interior of your body. And then you could also examine, you know, the, the sensations in your mental activities, thoughts, feelings, imagery, stuff like that. And there's all sorts of ways of then starting to refine our perceptual ability of what layer of sensation energy and information flow is happening. So you can have you know, the first five senses, of course, hearing, sight, touch, taste, smell. You have a bodily sixth sense where you can actually take in these sensations from your bodily organs, your muscles. And then the seventh sense where you have what we can call mental activities of thoughts and feelings that you know, aren't in the physical world, they're not in the bodily world, but they're certainly absolutely real and a part of our mental activity world. And then there's even perhaps an eighth relational sense of our connectedness to each other. So maybe there's a whole bunch of other senses too, but at a minimum, we have eight senses. And tracking energy and information flow is about refining our perceptual ability to sense these eight senses and in a way review them. You know, whenever you have any experience, you know, what are my five senses bringing in? Six cents, seven cents, eight cents. And it really then invites people to become much more grounded in the subjective inner world of their lives. When you build into this perceptual ability, the capacity then, if you find yourself stuck in life in ways that, you know, if you look at our diagnostic and statistical manual of psychiatric disorders, or if I just reflect on the patterns across individuals I've seen over these, you know, 30 years of seeing patients, you know, 
they amazingly fall into these patterns of either chaos or rigidity or some combination that is basically the basis of suffering. So I can suffer a little bit, you know, with the cough and let it go by saying, you know, I don't need to expect I won't be coughing. I've got, you know, this bronchitis, so it's going to happen, and I'm sorry for the editor who's got to edit out all the coughing, but I let that go, and I, instead of beating up on myself for having this bronchitis, I sense my frustration with it. I feel the pain of the coughing and the helplessness that the cough emerges whenever it seems to want to emerge, and then I let that go because I can track it, and rather than be caught in the rigidity of beating myself up or the the chaos of feeling, you know, oh, it's crazy, crazy, I'm coughing, coughing. I let it go, and with kindness and compassion toward myself and hopefully toward others as it emerges from myself, then I can move into a different kind of space of experience where I just accept things as they are, which is obviously an ancient teaching in in mindfulness practice, to have this curiosity, openness, acceptance, which is in many ways the basis of love, you know, this cold state I talk about in the mindful brain of, you know, this foundation for a mindful way of being. So um, what that brings us to is basically, why does anyone need to sense energy and information flow? Why is it helpful? Does it just increase awareness of the rigidity that's plaguing your life or the fact that we're all really helpless and chaotic? Or is there something more to it? This is the modifying part. This of is now the modifying, exactly. Yeah. If we just monitored, you'd say, whoop-de-doo, you know, okay, now you have more to write about in your journal, but what about actually transforming your life? What, you know, reality has at least two sides to it, maybe a bunch more, but as a, as a scientist myself, as a practitioner myself, you know, and, you know, also just a, a person in relationship to others, you know, uh, my partner, my my children, my friends, my colleagues, in all these ways, you know, I, I want to be present in all these different ways and be able to not just know myself, but create a, a more positive way of being. Um, and so that is where the modifying comes in. And that's where you can ask the question, gosh, if, if for some reason the entire, you know, f- over 500 pages of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders, if you, if you close your eyes and just poke your finger on any symptom of any syndrome, you can find basically it's an example of chaos or rigidity or both, which is what I've done, you know, in, in looking at that book, is randomly look at it. And it's my experience over these years of treating people. Well, why would that be the case? And what does that tell us about how we need to modify energy and information flow in our lives, what creates chaos, what creates rigidity, or the combination of the two. And so that search years ago basically led to the following, you know, realization that now has in many ways totally changed how I do psychotherapy. And for all my students, you know, that I have in my regular seminars or the you know, now over 100,000 therapists I've taught around the planet, you know, what I teach them is, the idea that you could define, we've defined a core aspect of the mind, but you can also define a healthy mind now as being one that's not stuck in chaos, rigidity, or both, but actually is coming into a place of flexibility and adaptability, a sense of coherence, which subjectively feels like harmony. When people talk about the harmony and ease of well-being, that's what we're talking about. And when you look deeply at the science of that, what emerges is this amazing thing for mathematics. And they don't use the term integration, which I'm about to use, but they mean it totally. When you look at complex systems that are capable of chaotic behavior, which certainly our lives are, um, and they're open to influences from outside themselves, that defines what's called, in formal scientific terms, a complex system. And it turns out that when a complex system moves across time, it has a, something called a self-organizing process that tends to move it toward what's called maximizing complexity. So for average folk like you and me, that doesn't have any intuitive quality to it. But when you think about a choir, it does. So if you imagine a choir, Tammy, where 
you have everybody sing the note the exact same way, it has this kind of dullness and rigidity to it. Mm-hmm. There's no differentiation. They're totally linked, the singers, but not differentiated. Then you have them close their ears, where they belt out a song as loudly as they can, but they can't hear each other sing, and the song is just random. They pick whatever they feel like. There's total differentiation, zero linkage, and it's cacophony. It's chaos. Then you have them open their ears, get together, and you say to them, sing whatever you want. And amazingly, they'll pick a song that they sing in harmony, where there'll be intervals that each of the individual singers is expressing his or her own identity, yet they're linking together in this familiar common song. And the feeling everyone has in the room, singer and listener alike, is a feeling of incredible vitality, of fluidity and flexibility. And people get the chills, and often, amazingly, over you know a half of the time, the choir, just doing this on their own, choose Amazing Grace, which, as Daniel Levitin has pointed out in his work, is you know one of the most harmonious songs in Western music. And they'll pick this, and you get the feeling subjectively of that. So what I wanted to point out was that in, in terms of integration, this differentiation of, of, of parts that then become linked, the linkage of specialized parts of a system, that's what allows you to move in a harmonious path. In complexity terms, you maximize complexity, but we can drop that term because it doesn't make intuitive sense and just use the word harmony. So when a complex system is linking differentiated parts, it becomes harmonious and adaptive. So what the interpersonal neurobiology view of health is, is basically integration. It's that simple. And it's that profound because when you've learned to monitor energy information flow, you can then take the pulse of where your life has rigidity in it, like when you have repeated habits that you feel imprisoned by or thoughts that keep on going over and over and over in your head. That's an example of rigidity. Or you keep on getting you know, romantic partners that are bad for you because they hate you, but you want to be with someone who hates you. That's an example of rigid patterns. Or on the other extreme, chaos you know, where you interact with people and suddenly you burst into this emotional chaotic storm that floods you and you don't have any kind of balance in your life and you're saying things to loved ones that you don't want to say or, or you're beating up on yourself in these, these uh, what I call low-road outbursts. You know, all those chaotic ways our life creates suffering for us. Those are all examples of impaired integration. And we could go through in detail what that looks like. And, you know, in the Mindsight book I do, but for our, you know, discussion here on, you know, on one-to-one on this, it's basically any opportunity you can see to feel rigidity in your life. It's an opportunity to look deeply at what is not differentiated in your relationships, what's not differentiated in your nervous system. I'm not following you there, because I, 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 yeah. I was with you until that point, because I, I can look inside and I can see all kinds of examples a rigidity and chaos? I can, actually, Dan. Yeah, okay. But when Later I ask we the, can talk about that. Okay, yeah. But when I ask the question, what's not differentiated, I, get con- I got confused. I don't know what you mean. Okay. Maybe I can, I can give you an example of something so it doesn't have to get personal, but um, you tell me what you want to do. Well, I mean, I, 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 something that's accessible for people, I think, is the key. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let me give you an example. So many to choose from. Let me see what the best would be here. Um, well, I'll give a I'll give a kind of um, general example. Okay. I can start feeling very chaotic when I feel overwhelmed by decisions at work, and I don't know the right answer, and everything inside me just goes into sort of a panic and a sense of chaos. Okay. Okay. Good. So now we'd have to talk a lot about the details, and uh, here's where this can get very personal. You you'd want to look at what the experience of thinking about those. Uh, details of your work decisions are. And we'd ask the question, you know, in your own history, and this is where memory comes in and narrative, you know, what's the meaning for you of being in a position of making decisions? So we'd explore your past and explore, you know, what it was like when you were raised uh, as a kid, what were your relationships with your peers were like, what the role of being a, a leader is, like obviously you are, it sounds true, um, what that's meant in terms of the notion of right or wrong, 
and see how aspects of your sense of self were specialized, you know, like I am the one who has to have the right answer in school, or I'm the one who has to have the right answer at home because my mother's an alcoholic and she can't mother my siblings, so I have to be in this position, or my siblings may be hurt, or, you know, my father's going to leave my mother. There are all sorts of things that, you know, we don't get into now, but where the idea of being in a leader position, you know, differentiates, that it specializes this aspect of being the one who knows and puts you, uh, takes you away from embracing another aspect of yourself, which is the unknower, the one who has freedom to actually relax into relying on other people's perspectives or, you know, developing this capacity for saying, you know, I'm not certain and uh, I need to let go of being in this, in this position where I am the one who makes all the decisions. This would obviously take more time than we have now, but as you would do that, you would look for different aspects of a self that were differentiated, and in that differentiation, here's the main issue. You might say, well, I'm well differentiated, but how do you link to other aspects of yourself that allow you to actually not know and allow a decision to organically arise not being, uh, not placing you in a position of being the one who has to make all the um, uh, clear insights of knowing. Now, in doing that, then you say, well, then there's a part of me that can let others be involved or a part of me lets other parts of myself even accept this not knowing place. And there we would then have you link a very active part of your mind that wants to be in control to one that realizes life is full of uncertainty and unpredictability. How do you, how do you embrace that? So as an example of that, you would go through these, what I call these uh, eight domains of integration. You'd search memory, you'd search narrative, what, what your sense of self is as a narrator. We would look at parts of your nervous system in terms of what's called vertical integration. You can literally see if you're allowing information from your intestine, and I'm not saying this poetically. I mean, literally, there are neural networks around your intestine and your heart that bring up non-logic-based wisdom, and how do you embrace that from a, that we call vertical integration, and then there's something called horizontal integration, where you would actually look at the way the right hemisphere processes information extremely different from the left. So just in terms of your issue about control, the left hemisphere is what's called a digital processor. It likes to know, is it one or zero? Is it yes or no? Is it up or down? Is it right or wrong? It has these big L's, so it makes it easy to remember. It's later in developing. It's linear. A goes to B goes to C. It's linguistic, so words are really important for the left hemisphere's expression and reception of information. Um, it's very logical, so it has this thing called syllogistic reasoning. It looks for cause-effect relationships. So in a decision at work, for you, you know, there's going to be a very big left hemisphere dominance to want to linearly, in a logical way, using language, have a way to predict the sequences that are unfolding. And, you know, you and I are just getting to know each other, so this is presumptuous for me to say, you know, this is the case. But I'm just giving you, this is more like an example. Uh, versus the right hemisphere, which instead of developing later, develops earlier. Instead of being linear, it's holistic. Instead of being logical, it's visual-spatial. And instead of being um, linguistic, it's nonverbal, and it has these other amazing dominances uh, in autobiographical memory, in um, stress response reduction, and in uh, having an integrated map of the whole body is only in the right hemisphere. So the experience of monitoring your inner world can learn to refine its perceptual ability to know when there's a left-dominant specialized thing going on versus a right-dominant mode that's specialized in its functions. And the idea is to, you know, allow bilaterally each area to be differentiated, but then to become linked when you face something like a decision at work to ask your right hemisphere, for example, for the wisdom of these nonverbal uh, intuitive processes that have a more right-dominant mode. So these are just, you know, incredibly uh, initial descriptions of, you know, the horizontal mode, 
the vertical mode. There's a whole field of memory integration, narrative integration. We talked a little bit about state integration, different states you get into. Um, there's something called temporal integration, which is embracing these existential issues of life that having a sense of time in our brain really creates this drive for certainty and for permanence and even for immortality. And yet, as we know, nothing is certain, nothing is permanent, and you know, life is obviously defined by mortality. And so those are areas of temporal integration. And then there's a whole field of interpersonal integration, which is how our relatedness allows people to be differentiated from each other, but also to be linked. And in relationships that don't work well, you see them suffering with chaos and rigidity. And often, incredibly often, if not almost always, in my experience of doing couples therapy for you know, decades now, you find that when you see a couple that's suffering with chaos and rigidity in their lives and they're about to blow apart, you can go across the prior domains of integration I've just mentioned, everything from vertical integration and up to narrative integration and beyond, and look at the ways where the couple is not allowing each individual to have this sovereignty and then linking. And amazingly, when you then review the other areas of, diff- of integration that may be impaired, you can then focus on interpersonal integration and transform relationships that before were about to explode, and now they, they go from barely surviving to actually thriving. So this idea that I can look inside and find when I'm feeling either rigid or chaotic, I'm fully with you there. Yep. And, and I, I think people can do that, and that makes sense. And then they experience that, and they're looking for differentiation, meaning they're looking for some part of them that's not integrated, that's not fluid, that seems to be sort of sticking out in the choir, taking over. Exactly. And you can do it, you know, in this model, you know, there are these eight domains of integration, and when you learn them, then it's kind of like, um, you know, learning to play the piano. You can see the keys in front of you but you don't know what to do with your perception. In learning these eight domains of integration, you learn, you know, what does vertical integration mean? So you learn how to literally check in with your body. In horizontal integration, you learn how to check in with your right mode versus your left mode. And then you can say, you know, gosh, I really obliterated my right mode from being a part of my life. So I'm like half a brain person. I I learned it in my home or I learned it in school. You know, we have very, very left-dominant schools, and a lot of us, you know, never have the opportunity to really differentiate a right mode of being in the world, and and people often feel very um, rigid and empty. They'll say, my life is meaningless, and often you'll find impaired right mode differentiation. Now, for you, Tammy, or for listeners hearing this this for the first time, you may just be going, I don't know what he's talking about. So what I want to suggest to you is just like you can look at a piano and say, well, I see the keys, but I wouldn't know how to make music. This is a way of really making music with your mind by seeing more deeply with this mindset business, seeing more deeply literally into the circuitry of the brain and the subjective side that correlates with it so that in reality we have at least these two dimensions. If there's one plane of reality, as we go into uh, these experiences we have, Stretching away from this one plane but still a part of it is neural firing patterns and at the same time subjective experience of, let's say, a thought or a feeling or a memory. And we can drive the brain with a thought, like if I ask you right now to think of some architectural uh, image in your head, Tammy. Okay. What would you think of? Chartres Cathedral. Okay. So you're thinking of the cathedral. Now, in a way, we could say that your mind made your brain do that. I mean, your mind being relational, I say, okay, Tammy, think of an architectural image, and you do. And then you're driving your brain to fire in certain ways. At other times, the brain kind of drives the mind, you know, that now your brain is primed for architectural images, and you might think about, you know, the Eiffel Tower, or you might think about, you know, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. You might think about all sorts of things. And there's this play back and forth of the mind and brain mutually influencing each other. Well, in mindsight, what you can do is become very aware of these two sides of one reality, that is the neural firing side and the subjective mental side. And you don't have to be a slave to either side. You can actually move both those experiences of reality. They're both real, 
and they're what are called primes. They're not reducible to each other. Um, and you can then uh, play with the experience of reality in a way that you move it toward linking differentiated parts. And in this case, if you found that your right mode, for example, was underdeveloped, there are specific ways to what I say, say snag the brain. You stimulate neuronal activation and growth, and you really harness this thing called neuroplasticity. You can actually use the mind to not only get the brain to activate in certain ways, but when you get the brain to activate in very specific patterns, you can actually change the structural connections called synapses. The synaptic connections in the brain can be activated with the mind, and therefore their structural connectivity to each other changed. So you can actually use your mind to shift the architecture of the brain. And in this case, we're defining it not in some willy-nilly way. We're saying you can intentionally create more integrative neural connections in your brain that will create well-being in your life, in your mental life, in your relational life, and even in your physiological life. So the proposal of health is not just about the health of our relationships and our mental experience. There are studies now to suggest that when you promote integration in these ways, you actually increase your immune function, you improve your blood pressure, and physiologically you're healthier. So we're using health in the deepest sense of health, even extending it into the planet. You can look at global warming and all the horrible things happening now on our planet as impairments to integration. And you see people stuck in so many ways and rigidity just happening all over the place. And integration then helps us understand on a global level how to create a healthier planet. So you had this very uh, pithy one-sentence definition of the mind. Do you have something like that for your definition of uh, well-being, of health? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it doesn't really appeal to people because this is such a new concept for most people. But health is integration. You know, integrating and, and all it, parts of the brain, all parts of the brain. So, so I think of a triangle of, of well-being. So you have the brain as one point on the triangle. So you have integration of the brain, as we said, linking left and right as differentiated parts, you know, vertically up and down. There's memory systems we haven't gotten to talk about in detail, but memory systems you can examine, you know, they can be integrated. Um, so in the brain, for sure. In the mind, it would be things like creating meaning. You know, when, when you're riding along the subjective side of reality, so often people who are suffering from either rigidity or chaos, they have this meaning that is imprisoning them, you know, let's say from a trauma. So trauma work in psychotherapy is so often an integrative process, you know, and so when I'm asked to give, you know, keynote addresses for the different trauma kinds of therapy, I mean, I, you know, I just bring this paradigm along and, you know, whether it's a you know, an, uh, an EMDR approach or a somatic experiencing approach or, you know, a, an approach of cognitive behavior therapy or group therapy or family therapy or psychoanalytic therapy, you know, I see these wonderful ways of helping reduce suffering as windows of opportunity to actually promote integration. And, you know, the, in the 15 textbooks that I've edited for the Interpersonal Neurobiology Series with Norton, you know, integration is basically either there directly or indirectly in all of these textbooks, which have thousands and thousands of scientific references. So as the founding editor of the series, it's, it's really exciting to now be in a place at this moment where we can say, look, there's a professional approach to integration in the mind and integration in the brain toward health. When you move into the relational side of the triangle, so this triangle is brain, meaning the extended nervous system throughout the whole body, mind as we've defined it, is the regulation of energy and information flow. Brain would be the mechanism. Relationships, this third point of the triangle, are how we share energy and information flow. You can talk about, you know, your relationship with your partner, your relationship with your family, your relationship with your community, relationship in schools, in societies, in even relationships in the whole planet of ourselves with other sentient beings. There's lots of ways of describing relationships. But when you look at integration at the heart of this triangle, you can see where when you don't allow, let's say, respect for other religions, and you say, I have religion A, and I want to kill people in religion B, that's a good example of impaired integration. Why? Because you're not allowing differentiation of people's different belief systems. 
But if you have a bunch of religions running around the world that never communicate with each other, that's an impairment in integration, too, because there's no linkage. So integration, even on this global level of thinking about all the world's cultures, and even if you think about our relationship or lack of it in a healthy way to the planet, you know, um, we're not honoring the differentiated needs of, you know, of, of plants, of animals, of all the species that are disappearing. It's a profoundly sad example of impaired integration. And so this is how you can, when you define health as integration, it's not just some Californian, you know, when you're from California, you have to be really careful of this, just giving some gushy, you know, thing like let's all hold hands and smile. It's a deep scientific framework for examining systems of your nervous system, your mind, your relationships, so that you then move these systems in a scientifically grounded way toward harmonious functioning. That's, that's the whole conceptual basis of it. And I know it's new, and I know a lot of people go, wow, that's too weird, or, you know, when I try to translate this, you know, for mindfulness practitioners in the mindful brain, it was like a new way of thinking about integration of what mindfulness does, or in this new book, Mindsight, you know, it's like people go, well, wow, I mean, we haven't even defined the mind, and now you're even defining a healthy mind. That's too much, you know, it's too much, too fast. Uh, for me, you know, since I've been practicing this way for decades, you know, it works so well and so efficiently for not just me, it's not just my belief in it, but all the students I've taught, uh, that it's, it's a new kind of shift in how to think about the mind and health. And I think, you know, because we're in such desperate situations now throughout the planet, I think we need a new way to bring health into our individual and collective lives. And, you know, the ninth domain of integration after these first eight is something I call transpirational integration. And it's a word I just made up, meaning to breathe across these other domains of integration. But what I found in my psychotherapy practice was that when people really worked hard at developing their monitoring and modifying skills with Mindsight, when they could then do that across these eight domains of integration, which is kind of basically what I do in therapy, um, what would happen unintentionally was that people would start wanting to devote their lives to the benefit of others. And not just others like, you know, their romantic partners or people in their family, but to causes and connections to people they might not even see directly, you know, that these were ways of realizing that these bodies that we live in, that are alive for 100 or so years, you know, just a part of the story. That energy and information flow, yes, uses the mechanism of the body to flow, and, and we have these minds that dance through the flow in our bodies, and they all dance together. But really, when you get this breathing across through all these domains of integration, this integration of integration, in a way, starts to happen, and this sense of a bodily defined self begins to dissolve. And it's not that you're losing a self, it's more like you're expanding a self. And then people start to realize that we are all interconnected. And we're not just interconnected now here on the planet, which is true, which people come to realize. We're connected to people that are going to be alive hopefully 200, 300 years from now. And so what we do matters because we're part of one ongoing continuum and that we let go of a limited sense of self and we start to realize, you know, that you and I are really we, and that we are a part of this ongoing flow that we're just riding upon. And you let go of the worries about a small self. You can approach death in a very different way. Um, you approach a sense of meaning in a very different way. And you realize truly that this differentiated life you call a bodily self is, in fact, linked to a much larger whole and integration and linking that differentiated self with this much larger whole becomes a part of what transpirational integration is all about, that domain. And then people start to have different sense of meaning. It's literally what the Greeks called eudaimonia. You feel meaning and connection and equanimity because it's not about, you know, can I gather up these toys or get this much fun going, this hedonic way of having well-being. But eudaimonia really gives you this deep, deep sense of equanimity, meaning, and connection. 
And that's what integration has the promise to offer. Now, now Dan, you and Jack Cornfield have been teaching together uh, a program uh, with crowds of therapists and now an online event with Sounds True, Mindfulness in the Brain. And we're both looking forward to it, yeah. How does the practice of mindfulness, and you sort of um, hinted at this, but just more explicitly, how does the practice of mindfulness promote integration in the ways you've been talking about integration? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And first of all, teaching with Jack is a real honor, and it's really a, a wonderful, not only relationship, but opportunity to explore a modern scientific conceptualization of interpersonal neurobiology with the ancient wisdom of Buddhist practice. So that's been really, really uh, fascinating and exciting to be a part of. Um, you know, in terms of mindfulness practice, I've mentioned, you know, seven of the eight forms of integration that precede the ninth one, transpirational integration. And that's something that I called long before I knew there was something called mindfulness meditation, which is a weird story unto itself, but the integration of consciousness. So in the formulation of a domain of integration, it's where you differentiate the experience of awareness from the separate specialized mental experience of an activity of mind. So I like to think of this as a wheel of awareness. So it's like if there's a central hub where you have awareness, anything on the rim of this wheel would be something you can be aware of. So there would be a sector of the first five senses, of the outside world, the sixth sense of the body, seventh sense mental activity, and the eighth sense of our relational connectivity to a larger whole. So from the hub, we have awareness, the rim, we have uh, that which we're aware of, and you can send out spokes to uh, focus attention if you choose to on a specific sector, uh, or you can have just what's called open monitoring. So in mindful awareness practice, um, I know this is condensing you know, everything I talk about on the Sounds True recording of uh, The Mindful Brain or in the book The Mindful Brain or the things that Jack and I talk about. Um, my reading of as a, a newcomer to this field, because I should just tell you, I have no formal training until recently in mindfulness as a practice, uh, and uh, I'm embarrassed to say I, I really didn't know the whole huge field that's thousands of years old, let alone the science of it that's many decades old now with John Kabat-Zinn's wonderful work and Richie Davidson. So uh, I'm a newcomer to the field. So being a newcomer and being an attachment researcher, you know, studying attunement between a parent and a child, when I finally did some mindfulness practice a couple years ago uh, at the encouragement of John Kabat-Zinn, you know, my experience of it was it was a deep way of becoming attuned to yourself without grasping onto judgments of really just melting into this presence of an observing self with an experiencing self where attunement could happen, where you could be open to what's actually going on, that's attunement. And then in, in the course of that, something called resonance happens where the observing self and the, the experiencing self influence each other. And this is what happens between parent and child. So clearly I was using the same, you know, filtering of, conceptualization, you know, that you can't help doing that. But that was my experience of mindful awareness. Now, in children, when they have presence, attunement, and resonance with a parent, it promotes the growth of the integrative fibers of the child's brain, literally. And what my thought was, when I first experienced this personally myself, was that, um, you know, that mindful awareness might be a form of internal attunement, where you're not having preconceived ideas or what are called top-down constraints or imprisonments, and you freely allow what's actually happening to be present in the hub of your awareness rather than constraining it by expectations. Um, so in the Mindful Brain recording and book, you know, what I try to do is explore the neuroscience of that. Um, and what the proposal was way back a long time ago, a few years ago, was that you, would, you could predict that mindful awareness would harness the integrative circuitry of the brain. And we're not doing brain anatomy here, but, you know, in those recordings in the book I do, basically there are fibers that link differentiated areas, and there are those that don't. So there are very specific areas, especially behind your forehead, called the, I call them the middle prefrontal area, and they help you resonate with other people. So what the hypothesis was was that those would be activated in mindful awareness practices, and at that moment, we didn't have the studies yet, but very soon after that, studies started coming out 
before they're published that people talk to me about because they hear me give a lecture. And it turned out now we have a number of studies that show it's exactly these integrative fibers that are activated during the practice of mindful awareness meditation, let's say, um, and also that get stimulated to grow, as Sarah Lazar has shown at Harvard, you know, when you're a long-term practitioner. So it's how a mindful aware state becomes a mindfulness trait. And the neural correlate of that is these integrative fibers are strengthened in their connectivity. So it was a pre-existing um, hypothesis about an ancient practice that now has neuro- modern neuroscience research confirming it. And, and the idea there is, okay, well, that's probably why mindful awareness as a practice, as an MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, actually results in a virtually identical set of outcomes of regulating your body, of attuning to others, of having emotional balance, of being flexible, of reducing fear, of having empathy, insight, even morality. Those eight functions are functions that emerge from the middle prefrontal area. I'm talking about this integrative neural area. Those are exactly the functions that mindful awareness practice have been shown in research to cultivate. And in my field, attachment, we showed, independently of the brain or mindfulness, that those are functions that develop in a securely attached child. There's a ninth one, intuition, that also comes from these integrative fibers that is promoted in mindfulness practice but not hasn't been studied in attachment. So the overarching hypothesis there is these three fields, attachment research with secure attachment leading to healthy functioning, mindful awareness practice, an internal form of attunement you could propose. The attachment is an interpersonal form of attunement. Both of those activate and ride upon and stimulate the growth of integrative fibers in the brain. And when I was presenting this once in Alaska, now a couple of places, this, this tribal elder came to me and said, you know, that list of middle prefrontal integrative functions. I said, yeah. She goes, our elders have been teaching us that that's the basis of wisdom for about 5,000 years. You know, this is up in Alaska for the, the Inuit tribes. And I went, oh, my gosh, you know. So I think what this science is doing is just illuminating what wise individuals have known for literally thousands of years, which is that there is an integrative way of living that allows us to live in harmony within ourselves, with other people, and with the planet. Dan, thank you. I mean, you know so much about so many different things, and I feel like we've uh, barely scratched the surface, to be honest. I'd love to go into more detail about all of these different ways of integration, modes of integration. Well, Tammy, anytime you want to do more scratching into the the surface, let's do it. Very good, and and I want to let our listeners know that beginning the week of October 5th, Jack Cornfield and Dan Siegel will be live offering an online event called Mindfulness and the Brain, and both Dan and Jack will be coming on to answer questions from listeners. There are continuing education credits available. The course is designed for all interested people, but really for professionals of all kinds in the health fields, people who are working with other people who are interested in this topic of mindfulness and the brain. And for more information, www.soundstrue.com forward slash courses. So that's www.soundstrue.com forward slash courses. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey.